It's 1979, and the Islamic Revolution has erupted. The situation in Iran is deteriorating. Paranoia and mistrust under a heavy-handed regime means it's unsafe for many to stay in the country. Escaping with his wife and five-month-old baby is the only option left to this Navy captain, who is affiliated with the former Shah regime. Leaving family, friends, and all of their possessions behind, they flee to Athens in the hope of getting the UK visa that they've applied for. But it's a move that puts them in limbo for several years. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. She's done even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. I feel the way we treat women on this planet will have a ripple effect on how we treat the planet itself, the ultimate her. Tehran-born Guillory Darabi is an environmental correspondent for Al Jazeera English and National Geographic. Over the past decade, she has reported from countries like Haiti, Afghanistan, Iran, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, countries often portrayed in the media as hostile and dangerous. Guillory's goal as a journalist is to help her audience see past stereotypes by uncovering unique and surprising stories of innovation, progress, and hope. Okay, uh, we are rolling, and I'm with uh, Guillory Durabi, and we are in Santa Monica, California. Have you had anybody pronounce your name in a crazy way before? I've heard everything, and it's almost like interpretive dance, my name, and I let people kind of go with it. But the one that actually stopped me in my tracks was Gorilla Danabi. <laughs> I would love gorillas. They're probably some of the coolest animals on All this right. planet, but that really... You don't look anything like a gorilla, <laughs> and I'm not sure how they got a gorilla from that, but anyway, your ancestry is... Well, it's Iranian, but according to my DNA, it's much more complicated than that. Oh, really? Yes. So, so your family, your immediate family, come from Iran, mm-hmm. but you've done what a DNA test, and it's what does it tell you? It tells me that I have one of the most diverse DNA profiles out there. Okay. So the average person has maybe two, three different nationalities, regions in their profile. I've got seven from Finland to China with a huge concentration around Iran and Turkey, Afghanistan, Central Asia. It seems to me, just looking at the types of stories that you tell, you are looking for a way to help people see the world in a different way. You want to kind of, you know, I use this reference a lot, but it's something that always resonates with me. The scene in Dead Poets Society where Mr. Keating gets up on the chairs and says to his classroom, look at the room differently. It seems like you want to share the world. You want to open people's eyes up to the to uh, a different way of seeing the world. Would that be fair? Absolutely. I would say my entire life, people have tried to put me into a box based on the way they thought the country I come from is like, or um, my culture, or the color of my skin, or my gender. And that's really challenged me along the way, and that's kind of why I choose to do things differently as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. Because I, I realize how limiting those stereotypes are. Why do you think people do that? I mean, you know, why, what is it? Is it that we, is that people get comfortable with seeing what they expect to see. And then when something different comes along, they just don't know how to deal with it. 
Why do you think people immediately go there? I think a big part of it has to do with the media and the storytellers. You know, sometimes it's very easy to kind of follow the stereotypes and what people believe and kind of highlight that as opposed to challenging it and looking for a deeper story. So, for example, I was born in Iran, which is a country, according to some people, is very controversial. It's very sort of difficult to understand. But really, it's a beautiful culture. It's my homeland. And... Uh, it really isn't just women and jobs and revolutions and, you know, hard governments. There's a really strong story to, cut, to tell. But I feel like a lot of the media hasn't taken the opportunity to tell the true story. And us as filmmakers, that's probably our greatest task. Well, in a way, it's a little bit like people overseas when they hear that someone is from America. They think a lot of times of what they see in movies or th their perception of a place is 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 so tainted by what they see. So in a way, it's one of the reasons I love working on Amazing Race is that we get to go to a place and celebrate what's right about a place as opposed to what's wrong. Because so much of what the news is about is, oh, today in South Africa, this bad thing happened. Mm -hmm. Or today in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, there was political unrest, and this is what's going wrong. And so for people who haven't traveled, their perception of hearing these places and what they think they know of these places is, oh, everything goes wrong in these places. Absolutely. So when, people, when you say, oh, uh, my family's from Iran, do you see them immediately, all the stereotypes just get switched on straight away? It used to be like that. We're really moving at a very rapid pace towards understanding each other with the internet. Yeah. But of course, growing up as a child, I used to get lots of questions like, well, does your mom wear a hijab? It's like, no, she wears mini skirts and pretty low cut tops. And I kind of wish she would stop. <laughs> and, you know, is your dad, you know, really domineering? And does he wear the pants? It's like, no, he's stuck with two very strong women. And he hardly gets a say out of the three of us. And so it really, I was challenged a lot of the time with the perception that people had of me and my family. And I took it as an opportunity to share and open people up to my life and to my family and what it's really like to be Iranian from my perspective. So that's been a big motivator for the types of stories you've chosen? And it's a big motivator in the field. I may not go out with the notion. I'm going to go to Afghanistan and I'm going to show that there's actually really strong women who live and work there. But when I'm in the moment, I see the opportunities and I always take them. Also in the edit, that, that's where I really like to, to have a strong voice and to make sure that the right storytelling, the right writing and the right characters emerge. Well... Your story and how you came to North America is pretty extraordinary. You talked about your, your mom and dad, huge influences in your life. Tell us about escaping from Iran in a very difficult time in history. Uh, I can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, uh, to want to escape from a country, your parents wanting to uproot and leave other family members and, and get out. What can you tell us about that? At the moment when they were planning to leave Iran, they didn't really know they were escaping. They didn't really know that they could never come back. And I was born, you know, five months after the revolution, the Islamic revolution, and the country was completely being turned around. My father was a captain in the Shah's Navy and sort of associated with that regime, which got quickly ousted. So they were very kind of nervous, you know, uh, some of his friends were 
not returning phone calls. There was a lot of paranoia. There's a lot of accusations and people disappearing. Um, and they thought, hmm, this doesn't feel right. And this doesn't feel like the environment we want to raise a little girl in. And so... You're an only child? I'm an only child, yeah. They really didn't get the chance to have children after that because it takes a long time to adjust to a new culture and say goodbye to your, to your roots. Um, so my father had been accepted to the University of Cardiff in the master's program for chemistry. So as we were waiting for our visas to come in from the UK, we thought it'd be best to maybe go to another country. Now, this Just is- to make a, an initial step out. Yeah. But, but I, I read that you, you couldn't just sort of uproot, take, you know, clear out the bank accounts and just make a big move because that would alert the authorities. So you had to do sort of a soft move out, right, to get to Greece. You left, your parents had to leave things sort of as if they, they were just going away for a little while. I think they were going to come back. Yeah, I mean, they, they were newlyweds. They had had an, a baby girl. Life was really starting for them. They had a new flat and had gone around from the wedding gifts and all the new appliances my mom had bought. That was their home. Mm. And they really just left that behind, took a little bit of money from the account to, as you say, not draw too much attention to them, and, and bought a ticket to Greece. They were incredibly lucky to have been able to have found that window of time to leave the country because shortly after the borders closed, the, you know, it was impossible to leave um, so there was great fortune and how they left but it was in, in a lot of stress and uncertainty and and I heard the goodbyes at the airport with the family was just tearful and mm. and devastating for them it, it must I mean how could it not give you just such a completely different perspective on the idea of of an oppressed people wanting to escape and get out to find a better life the empathy that you must have just having lived it I was born into chaos, really, and uh, it took our family a long time to settle and to find roots. So now as I look at the world with climate refugees and migrants at the border and people just constantly having to leave their homes, like that's my story. I get that. It was so interesting, the recent crisis with with the refugees all going through Greece. Mm. That was, you know, a central place for my family. So that really... Those images on the beach with the the refugees coming off the boat and little children being held by their parents. (laughs) It's yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, the Greek people, many of them were incredibly kind and showed a lot of kindness and sense of humanity and really did their best to rescue people coming off the boats and to offer whatever food and assistance that they could. And that's kind of the treatment that my family had in Athens as well. So that's a really special landing place for me. And when that sort of happened again in history not so long ago, it really awakened a lot in me. Yeah. And, and your parents, of course, too. And so how long was it that your parents had to wait there before the Cardiff opportunity opened up? We were stuck in Greece for about two years and the Cardiff opportunity never opened up because the situation in Iran became much more hostile. Hmm. The hostage crisis happened, which was very, very bad for Iran's international reputation. And ultimately, my father lost a chance of studying in the sciences, which is what he really, truly wanted to do because we were told, I'm sorry, you're Iranian, we can't trust you. So, And this is happening today where... Where just because of where just because somebody comes from a certain place, they're suddenly painted with the same brush. You know, the, the the assumption is that something's wrong with them or they can't be trusted, which is sad. You know, it's incredibly sad. Yeah. Um, 
and to be just you know a new f- small family you know we were relatively lucky because you know we bought flights and we left and we left in a peaceful way once those borders were shut i heard so many stories of families having to be smuggled out of the country via smugglers and a really harrowing journey so we consider ourselves very lucky that we got out when we did and the accounts that they left the bank accounts, I presume all of that was lost in this transfer. They never were able to get their funds back. Or... Yeah, I, b- I believe we, we sort of left the country with very little money and, and that money disappeared very quickly. So my father had to find work in Greece and, and try to make ends meet. And um, we found a very small flat and that's where we sort of lived while we were waiting. It's such a common story in the immigrant tale. I, I often talk to taxi drivers, Uber drivers, people who are serving food, who's, who come from other countries and they're often doctors back home or somebody who had a very high position, you know, to transfer to another land, to start all over again, you really have to swallow your pride in a lot of ways. And you do it, you do it because you love your family and you do it because you want something better for the next generation. For me, that is the ultimate act of heroism. Your mom and dad, you're close with them? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough being generation zero. That's what I call myself. Mm -hmm. Because I was born in Iran and I come with that very strong culture, but I'm in a new North American society. And to be the first generation to kind of represent that transition, it's a tough one. You know, I really was a rebellious kid. I really wanted to live the life the way the people around me were living. And I would come home to a different set of rules and a different tradition. Do you think also maybe there was the idea that your parents were trying to vicariously live through you? Like they, they could see that you had the opportunities and so they, they, they wanted to experience those opportunities. And maybe when you chose a different path, they were like, oh, no, don't go that way. Go this way. It's interesting because, you know, in the, in the work we do, there, there is very little stability. We are on the road all the time and we never traveling. know where the next never, jobs are going to come yeah, up. And they're like, we left instability and you chose instability as a career. Yeah, you what's know? wrong with you? You know, they love um, statutory holidays and the weekend and, you know, having that regular, peaceful, reliable life. And I've chosen the complete opposite as a career. And I, although they're very proud of me, they really just don't understand it. Yeah, I, I remember talking to my grandparents about that just you know, my grandmother wasn't allowed to go to university because she was a woman. It was sort of like, oh, women don't do that. But this, her brothers got to go and she was very bright. Well, my grandfather, who didn't get to go to school because his father wanted him to go to, to work straight away. Mm. And then they are watching their grandkids get these opportunities. And I often think of how hard that would be if they saw that maybe I've made some crazy choice like you. I went into television. My parents were like, what are you doing? What kind of a life is that? Yeah, you're, you're constantly calling home from airports and, and, and exhausted and this place and that place and anti-malaria pills that make you feel rotten. Yeah. And um, they're very proud and they really instilled in me a strong activist voice, uh, a strong feminist and environmentalist voice. And so they, they're happy to see me you know, sharing that with the world, but they're just wondering, when are you going to settle down <laughs> what's the when answer? I'm dead? <laughs> what's, that? what's the answer to that? Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just the nature of what you do. Um, I, the, the, the neighbors that you had in Greece, mm-hmm. um, special neighbors, and then it leads up to this incredible story uh, of this opportunity to 
get out of Greece. Can you tell us about these neighbors of yours? Yeah, my, my mom is a very, she was a young mom and, and she's a very charming woman. She's very chatty. She still talks to the neighbors all the time. And she sort of started sparking up conversations with different people around her, even though she spoke very little Greek and her English was a bit shaky, but just those bright, sparkly green eyes and that big smile, that was the conversation there. Um, and amongst this kind of tribe of neighbors that came around and started helping us, you know, giving us extra blankets or, you know, different things that maybe we needed, there was one particular woman who was a diplomat's wife. And she was really helpful in kind of keeping an eye on us. And when she saw the UK plan wasn't really working out, she mentioned to my family, you know, Canada is accepting immigrants at the moment. So you guys should really apply. They said, okay, we filled out the paperwork. From sent it Greece, off, obviously. From Greece with the help of but this woman. Is there an, was there an embassy there in Greece? Or? I'm sure there was, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know those details, but they sort of ticked that box. Okay, yeah. we'll apply. Never heard a thing. Um, and months went by and I think they started becoming a little bit more worried and desperate because as they were watching the situation at home, it became very clear there is no going back. Yeah. Could you imagine that, I, no, that in-between place to I, be No, I in? can actually. I, 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 I come from New Zealand and I can't imagine what it would be like if someone said, I can't go home. Be, I'd be lost. I mean, it's such a huge part of who I am, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine tomorrow you just pack your bags thinking, okay, I'll, I'll leave that towel there and I'll leave this here and I'll wash those when I get back, right? And then there is no coming back. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine that. Yeah, so interesting stroke of fate that happened was, um, so the diplomat who was married to the diplomat's wife was on a flight and he started chatting with the person in the seat next to him. Well, what do you do? And this is what I do. Oh, I work for, you know, the Canadian consulate, uh, working with different immigrant files. And he said, you kidding me? I know this amazing family, the Darabis. And the person said, hang on a second. What did you say that name was? Darabi. The, the, the man is, was in the Navy? Yes. Their file is sitting on my desk. They look great, but they don't kind of meet the monetary requirements. And the diplomat said, I promise you, if you let this family in, you will never regret it. Two oh days later, God. we get a phone call. Welcome to Canada. You are kidding me. Did you ever track down who that was? No, but that would be a great story that to be tell. Good? Yeah. Oh, how amazing would it be if, you, if your family turned up one day and found out who this consulate was, this, this gentleman, whoever he was? And I mean, for him, it was just a chatty, nice conversation. He probably chatted with everybody in the seat next mm -hmm. to him, but he probably doesn't realize the impact that had on a small family. Who knows what might have happened to your family Absolutely. had that not happened? Yeah. So your family comes to Canada and how old are you then? By then I'm about two, two and a half. And okay. we land in Vancouver, Vancouver British yep. Columbia. And how did your parents get on once they got there? What, what, what life did they settle into at that point? It's a very typical immigrant life of hard work, menial jobs, things that are way below the education and qualifications that they have, overnight shifts, um, ships passing in the night, exhaustion, just to get life back to what they can consider to be peaceful and normal and, and secure again. I look at old photographs of my dad and my mom during that period and my dad just looks so gaunt, you know, and so tired. And here I am having a lovely little childhood and I'm, you know, eating this little cookie and, and, and I could see the fatigue in his eyes um, as he was trying to put life back together for his family in a brand new place. We're 
you or was your family in any way connected with the family at home? Was there any way to connect with them during this crisis time? There, there were phone calls, yes. Yeah. And, and when you called Iran at the time, the line was really rough and crackly. crackly yeah. You would just hear my parents just hollering down the phone call. When it, anytime I would hear that, I knew they were talking to Iran because it was hard for the other side to hear. Yeah. It was, hello. But, you know, and, and that voice on the other end or your parents or your brother or your sister uh, that you're just trying to exchange a few connective words with. Oh, and letters, would, would, would they be able to freely flow back and forth, the letters? I, I have memories of, of some letters, but really it was that crackly phone call. And talk to your grandparents, and the, the phone always thrust in my hand, and I never really knew what to say. And maybe also a concern that maybe people are listening in as well? or I, I think once we were, we were out, that really was, that paranoia really dissipated. But I mean, for the people who were left behind, you know, worrying obviously about them. Absolutely. And unfortunately, still today, I mean, I was in Iran a couple years ago making a documentary and, and I still had those same fears and had to be very careful not to communicate with my family while I was on the land that we were sharing because I didn't want to lead anybody to them in case we were being followed. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, so that's, that's it's gut-wrenching It's gut-wrenching. And, and they had seen a couple of my pictures on Instagram later. And like, were you here? How could you not have called us? And I did it for your own safety. That's what I was advised to do. Some of the stories that you've done going back to this passion you have for maybe opening people's eyes up to seeing the world differently. Uh, Afghanistan is a place you've traveled to. And I'm really interested in this, the Af Afghanistan female warden's documentary was that what it was absolutely yeah tell us about that what drew you there and why you did that story i i sometimes come across stories where i feel again that hand of fate sometimes you come across a story and you feel like i am meant to tell this this mm -hmm. is going to happen and when i fell upon a small article on a website that had just announced that a certain national park in afghanistan had hired four female wardens I knew that that story needed to be told. And I was able to travel out to Afghanistan to a beautiful national park called Banda Amir. You just don't think of Afghanistan and think of a national park, right? It's sort of almost the last thing you think of, only because even though I travel a lot, it's just you hear Afghanistan and immediately it triggers you know, a war, war or it triggers some dry landscape where people are struggling. You don't think of a national park. I mean, Afghanistan wasn't always war-torn and Taliban and, and the way we see it in the news. Afghanistan used to be a huge, you know, mecca on the hippie trail. You know, there were a lot of European Absolutely. travelers that used to go to Afghanistan. They're driving their combis across exactly. Europe. Exactly. <laughs> there are some brilliant photographs of people really enjoying Afghanistan and taking in the, the nature. And one of those locations that people would go to on that hippie trail was Banda Amir National Park. Seven turquoise, beautiful mineral lakes and the Afghans have have enjoyed this park for for many many years and they had after the war they'd managed to sort of revitalize it and invite guests in once again and what they were noticing was a lot of women and children were coming and to bathe in the mineral lakes because they thought that they had healing properties and it wasn't really appropriate according to the culture for the male wardens to approach them and give them directions so they realized we need to hire female wardens to communicate with all the women and children who were coming so it kind of came out of a necessity and and you were saying that this was it offered a, ironically, the, the culture 
that was, a, was suppressing them in one way opened up an opportunity in another because suddenly they were needed to fulfill this role. And for many of them, that was their first job ever. That was their first job. And what did these women say about having their first job? Like the pride and all of that. What was They were so incredibly proud. And, and I got to spend the day with one particular family where she had about eight, nine children and would get up at the crack of dawn and prepare breakfast and get all the kids sorted and then put her uniform on. And that moment where I got to watch her just put her uniform on and make sure everything was straight and get her hat on while her little daughter was watching her. That was a really strong moment for two women to share. We didn't share a lot of words, even though I could speak the same language with her, but just watching her look okay. in the mirror. Why is it so important for us to see places like that differently? And particularly right now, at this time. If you don't allow your mind to grow when you hear of a culture or meet a person, then truly you are robbing them of the opportunity to grow. Really, the narrative needs to change. Yes, horrible things happen, and, and right now it's a devastating time for the country, but life goes on, and people are still dreaming, and people are still thriving, and families are still trying to make the best life for themselves. And so I think if you have a very limited view and, and sort of, in a way, you you trap others in that limited view. And we really need to open our minds, especially as storytellers, when it comes to how we portray certain cultures. The biggest satisfaction I get from my job is when somebody says to me, I had no idea mm -hmm. that Iran has a female vice president. I had no idea that women in Afghanistan could work. I had no idea that, you know, there were female rangers in the Congo. That, for me, is the biggest satisfaction. That's mission accomplished. Right. You've changed somebody's view of the world. And I, I say that about working on Amazing Race as well. When we've had situations where Muslim people have helped out these people racing around the world in such a, what is really a trivial way, if you think about it in the greater scheme of things. But people stop me and they say, did those Muslim people really help them <laughs> and i'm like of did. course they did but their perception of that religion those people as they say is that they must be associated with something bad they can't be trusted and you can't blame them gillary because like you said before they're bombarded with so much negative information that is their perception of who these people are but the tide is turning, and I think that's why there was such immense grief when we lost Anthony Bourdain. There yeah. are storytellers out there who are, are not just ticking the lazy boxes, who are really pushing the boundaries and opening up minds and really making a huge effort to tell the story in its fullness. And I'm really excited to be part of that wave. And these voices, do you feel it's becoming harder for people to stand up with a strong voice? I mean, even just... If you look at what's going on in the current news now, it, people who are sharing their stories are being shouted down for having a voice. Um, journalists are almost being told to just fall in line and paint a particular narrative. Is it going to be harder, do you think, for there to be distinctive voices, storytelling voices? It's never really been easy. And, and I do think it could become more challenging, but... That's the line of work that we've chosen. That's part of the greatest hurdle that we face is telling the story and telling it in a way that is an, got a huge amount of integrity to it. Um, is it going to get harder? 
It really has never been that easy. Mm. You, you are obviously going to continue to find those stories? That's what absolutely... Is that what drives you drives as a storyteller? Me. Yeah, and, and as I was saying, it doesn't always come in the planning, but it is definitely part of the journey and massively as part of the edit. You know, it was important for me in that Afghanistan film to include the ranger's husband saying, I'm really happy there's female rangers. I wish there was more. I really support her. Actually, I'm going to have her sit on the back of my motorcycle and give her a ride to work. I'm proud of my wife because I wanted to make sure that the male perspective was also shared. Well, the passion thing, I always say to people, you can't teach that. You either really care about wanting to tell a story or you don't. And the audience, they can see right through somebody who's just going through the motions and someone who really, really cares about their stories. And if you look at your body of work it's clear that you care about the stories you're telling absolutely i mean the audience has an amazing bullshit detector yeah so it really kind of pushes you and uh, a lot of people don't kind of stick around in our industry you've got to really have a lot of passion and commitment yeah. to do it for it's as hard. long as we have and it's competitive there's a lot of people knocking at the door trying to also tell those stories so you've got to be consistently good You've got to be good and you've got to be genuine and you've got to care. Yeah. Because, you know, people sort of see us just on camera and think it's an incredibly glamorous life. It really is quite the opposite. For anybody to travel as much and, and to, you know, be on the road and up late and, and working all hours and you have no weekends, you kind of have no mm. life, you've got to love it. Yeah, you really do. Speaking of caring about stories, the, the rhino story that you're doing, I was really fascinated to read that because I had never heard of this pink dye. Uh, that is put into the rhino horn. Tell us more about that. It's the, the dye that they use in the banking industry when they want to make sure large sums of money don't make it across airports. It's got sort of compounds in it that make it sort of detectable by an x-ray and it leaves this horrible stain. So it really like once it's out there, you can't get it off, you can't wash it off. So how do you put dye into rhino horn? I'll tell you how they do it. There is a team in a helicopter that spots the rhino, shoots it with a tranquilizer dart, radios down to the ground team. The ground team has 45 minutes exactly to locate the rhino wherever it's passed out and get to it and to complete the operation. Once they find the rhino, they've got to keep it hydrated, they've got to put sort of a mask over its eyes, and they've got to drill into its horn to insert this pink dye all within this 45 minute frame of time. After 45 minutes, the, the rhino wakes up and they usually charge. So you can see it's a real high pressure situation and for us to have been able to join them and to be a fly on the wall, trying not to get in the way, but trying to get the story was a really kind of adrenaline filled adventure for us. And where do I gotta we see say, this story? Cause this sounds amazing. Yeah, again, you can find it online. It's called Pink uh, Horned Rhinos. Pink Horned Rhinos. And I gotta give credit to the filmmakers who put those GoPros on the helicopters and just put them exactly in the right place where when that guy takes that shot with a tranquilizer gun nailed it so just tell us about the operation i'm really interested in how the dye goes into the horn like is there a cavity inside the horn like is there how does it go in yeah there's definitely a cavity and so they've got to drill at three different points for it to exist and sort of stay inside the horn this doesn't hurt the rhino at all. The rhino horn is just like our fingernails, mm -hmm. but really strategically placing it so that it's inserted there so that if a poacher does take the horn and remove it from the animal. Will the poacher know that that 
horn has got the dye in it. And here's the beautiful thing. Once they do the operation, they put up signs around the park or the oh. nature reserve that says some of these rhinos have had this treatment done. So then so it becomes your, a massive your, risk. Your horn, the, the, your rhino horn could be completely useless. Yeah. So the poachers usually don't waste their time right? because it's a very dangerous situation for them as well. So they usually don't go near the parks that have had this, this procedure done. And so sometimes they only need to do three or four rhinos, but just putting it's up those signs. It's enough of a deterrent. It's a deterrent. Wow. It, just to give some perspective on rhino horn, because I was reading some of the numbers that the cost that people will pay for a rhino horn... Can you give me some idea? I, I, I was hearing some like crazy prices. It, it's at Something one like point it was valued at more at no, the price of gold. Five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, at one point it was valued more at the price of gold. It's always fluctuating, and there has been huge changes in the market. But you know, it's the Asian market that sets the price. And at one point it was more than the price of gold, and a highly valuable thing. And if and a valuable thing is as as in Asia something that they grind up. To take as an aphrodisiac, is that correct? At one point, it was being touted as a cure for hangovers. Oh. So there are different sort of medicinal properties that are tied to the rhino horn. But it, they say it's good for anti-cancer, for virility, for curing a hangover. It's kind of been given this name of being a cure-all for all kinds of diseases. So if it's got the pink dye in it and someone was to grind up a rhino horn and then take it with the pink dye, is the pink dye poisonous in some way? It's not harmful to humans. I mean, they become sick maybe for a couple hours, but it's uh, not going to kill them. But right. yes, they're definitely going to fall ill for a couple hours. Right. But I think it's not even going to get past the airport. Mm, so then people just, wow. Never heard of that before. It's, it's a genius way of handling it. And it came from a particular female who had um, Lorinda Hearn rhinos on her family property for all of her life. And when those were poached, it broke her heart. And her background was business. So she looked into finding a way with the skills that she had to protect the animals that she loved so much. You seem to go after stories that have some element of danger. I guess only because they're stories... The stories that you care about are the stories that you want to use to make a difference in the world. Uh, do you ever get scared? I, I often don't. Um, and that's probably because I'm such a big part of the planning. You know, when you produce your own films and, and you research them and you talk to the people on the ground and you put it together, you really get an idea of what's going to happen to you and what's gonna, what it's going to be like. I think if a story was just sort of handed to me mm. without me being involved in the creation of it, I would be quite nervous. And that's happened before. That's why I tend to produce my own films and direct them myself as being part of that evolution and that kind of coming together of the story gives me peace of mind yeah i mean you're you're petite <laughs> and i yeah. and i just i think of you out there as so being so brave um even just the physicality of it you know i mean being next to a huge rhino i i've been around some wild animals and it can be especially when they're waking up can be terrifying. It, it was it was exhilarating. I mean, I got to say, being five feet tall and ninety five pounds is incredibly disarming sometimes. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's helped me, you know, gain people's trust, be invited into the home, being invited into people's lives. I think it's it's tough being a petite person in this world, but it really has helped me sort of break barriers with people a lot faster. That's really interesting. I never thought about that, but I mean, I know people who are very 
tall and now I'm thinking I'm big and I'm thinking that must be quite threatening at times, just the physicality of someone walking in. So Gilary, what about some stories that you want to tell that maybe you're, you're wanting to, that you're working on or things that you really want to share with the world? I mean, I'm, I'm really quite um, committed to telling the story of climate change. You know, that this is the story of my generation and this is the story of our species right now. We're at such a critical point right now, such a critical mass that I feel like if, if I don't give it my all as a storyteller, I haven't done my part. Uh, so this is sort of what's keeping me up at night. It's, it's, it's obsessing me. It's worrying me. It's giving me hope when I reach out and I see people are doing their best um, to kind of reverse the effects of uh, our man-made climate change, you know, changing. What's the number one climate change story that we should be hearing about or that should be shared right now? For me, I'm very interested, no surprise, in the story of the climate refugees and people having to leave the land that they've lived on and farmed for generations because water is running out. Mm. Water is, is a big story for me. It's something I'm quite connected to and it appears quite often in my storytelling. So that for me, the story of fresh water and the water that our species needs to survive really being overused and, and running out is probably one of the most important and the most undertold. I'm reading a, an article the other day and it, and it was saying that the unfortunate part of the effects of climate change is that it's going to take quite a long time for it to reach the developed world, meaning it's the people in the developing countries that are going to be experiencing the effects immediately or are already. And so, unfortunately, where the capitalism, where the money is, those people can be sheltered from the effects for much longer. And that's climate a bit change frightening. is really um, highlighting the inequality in this world. Yeah. And really, it is those who have nothing and are really struggling that are on the front line. They are the first wave of humans to be impacted. And it is a, such an unfortunate thing that their lives are already so hard. And often it's not things that they're doing that it's affecting them, but it's coming from the developed world and, and industrialization and industries that are growing way faster than we can keep up. Up with that's affecting some of the most disadvantaged people on our planet. You look at the rising ocean levels and some of these islands like uh, Kiribati and uh, Barbuda in the Caribbean. It's an, a, an island that's 106 feet above sea level, you know, the highest point. Um, those rising ocean levels and what it's going to do to places like Bangladesh, where millions of people are going to be displaced. That's the thing that concerns me is that people in the developed countries don't think that this affects them what's happening over there but it will because then these people need you know they need resources so absolutely and and what we don't realize is that if we don't do something about this the number one animal on the top of the extinction list will be us you know mm. it, it will affect all of us eventually and we all need clean water to survive and fresh air and, and you know it's something that's going to affect each and every person no matter what's in your bank account so it really is such a crucial time for us to take action and not to bury our head in the sand and ignore just because it's disadvantaged people and, oh, it's not happening over here and everything seems to be fine. We really need to come together as a collective to make a huge change. Yeah, and, and also in world population numbers. That to me, we're, we're just exacerbating the problem because the world population is increasing. They, you know, we're just, it's just growing out of... 
we just don't have enough new resources. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and, and it's, kind of, it's about time that we talked about overpopulation and yeah. really didn't see it as taboo. We need to talk about family planning and we need to talk about family planning in some parts of the world where culturally it's not acceptable. Yeah. We're running out of time. Mm. So we really need to have those uncomfortable conversations with each other if we want to safeguard this precious thing that's been given to us. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, the one thing that actually is giving me a lot of hope at the moment is, is in a way, the Me Too movement, is the movement of women mm -hmm. empowering themselves and finding voice and really demanding to be recognized and respected. I feel the way we treat women on this planet will have a ripple effect on how we treat the planet itself, the ultimate her, which is this sort of being that we all, you know, Exist Mother on Earth. Mother Earth. And what 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 about the importance of of you know this country was founded with immigrants, right? There seems to be a propensity right now for for the people to want to shut the door and to say no more. How do we find that balance? We know the benefits that come from bringing in different cultures into a country like America, which is such a melting pot. But how do we balance this right now? What is, the, what is the answer? Why, why is everybody so scared? I think a, a big missed opportunity that people are not recognizing is when you offer someone safety and peace and a chance to just exist their lives, you know, without any danger, um, they become the biggest land protector and environmentalist that you, you could ever meet. And that, that's the story of my own family. I mean, the attachment that they have to Vancouver and the river that we grew up on and the nature around them, I mean, that is something that's going to be passed on for generations. It was passed on to me, and I'm passing it on in my storytelling. There's, there's something incredibly powerful when you give someone an opportunity, when you offer them safety, when you offer them clean water and a place to grow their family, that that attachment and that kind of loyalty is is something that's going to be passed on for generations so the key gallery is we keep on talking right yeah we keep on communicating we keep on telling stories we keep talking about the difficult stories right we keep talking about the things that are uncomfortable to talk about yeah, and, and we keep trying to understand each other and really, you know, extending the opportunity to somebody else to share their story. I'm sure you've, you've noticed this in this field when you ask someone, like, tell me your story. Who are you? Sometimes their eyes just light up. Like, mm. That is probably one of the biggest gifts that we could give each other. Um, certainly when you leave your country of birth behind and you don't bring very much with you, you know, I lost my birth certificate. I don't even know what time I was born. I don't, there's a lot of things I don't know about myself. But the thing I have are the stories that yeah. my family shared with me. That, that's the biggest currency that I, that I carry with me. Guillory, it's wonderful to talk to you. I, I always end the podcast with a couple of questions. If, if you were going to take a road trip across America or Canada, a. <laughs> and you could, <laughs> A, which is a little bit further, <laughs> um, and you could take anybody from any time in history in the car with you, who would you take with you? Without a doubt, I would take Frida Kahlo, the, the Mexican Ooh, yeah. artist. Um, I learned about her story very, very young. I read an article somewhere before the film came out, before she sort of became an international phenomenon. And I was obsessed with her. And in fact, one of the first trips I ever took was backpacking around Mexico 
to just sort of find her artwork. I had convinced my boyfriend at the time, you know, like, let's take a bus across the Tijuana border and let's go to Mexico. It'll be a lot of fun. And here this poor guy thought it was going to be an episode of Baywatch with me like running slowly down the beach towards him. And instead, I dragged his, his poor butt to every single cultural institution around the country. How'd that relationship go? <laughs> We're not really talking right now. Okay. <laughs> where she have, you know, they could have just said, Frida Kahlo, maybe scratch the wall over here. It's like, we got to go. And, and I really sort of explored Mexico through this powerful woman's story. So to be able to go on a road trip with her um, with some lovely food that she was known for making and some great music would be great. And if we could pick up one person along the way, it would be Amélie Poulain from the film Amélie. Yeah. That's two. You've got one more. I got another seat in the car. Yeah. Um, Jacques Cousteau. You know, to just to balance it with all the women in the car, yeah. that would be my. He would be trip. interesting. Right? He would. He really talk about a, a water defender. Talk about one of the early voices that warned us. Yeah. Of what about we, what was going on. What with was Carl going Reeves on, and, and what we stand to lose. You mm. know, he really was one of the early alarms, the early storytellers, mm. and um, that wasn't what he studied. But he realized the power of the story and the power of communication. Really, anybody, anybody from a taxi driver, to a marine biologist, to a babysitter, to anybody, a Starbucks worker, it could use that powerful gift. And that's something he really did. That's a nice car ride there. Yeah. Yeah. And your last day on Earth, if you were going to plan it? So my favorite place on Earth is this beach in Vancouver called Rec Beach. It's clothing optional. Okay. <laughs> and you got to take these crazy stairs to get down to it. So I would imagine that they'd have to sort of carry me down on some sort of bed down to Wreck Beach, but that's where I would want to be. Um, and I'd love to have a bunch of animals with me, you know, all the animals that I've adopted over the years, if I ever get to do that, so if I stay put for longer than five minutes, and my family and my loved ones, and a nice cup of you know, fresh mint tea in my hand and a huge spliff because it's my last day and I'm Canadian, right? I can do that on Rec Beach and that's how I would want to go. That's so creative. <laughs> Feels to me like, say? what's stopping you? You might as well live out that day. I mean, come on, right? Yeah, that's There's that's... no reason why you can't do that. Seriously. And I'm not saying I haven't done that, but ah, okay. You just <laughs> want to do it again. That's, but I mean, if that's where you know I'm going to take my last breath. Yeah. Why that, not? That's where it's going to be. This Iranian girl that has traveled the world and told stories and met all kinds of people. I just want to go back to the land that that made me and my family safe. That's where I want to take my last breath. Beautiful. Good to meet you. Yeah. Thank you. you. Too. Thank you. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it.